0: books well, we are in Colossians chapter 2 yet, and uh, Colossians 2, we've been looking at verses 16 through 23, I want to read the text, have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll finish off this three-part message, I hope it has been a help to you, today's is probably really practical and really helpful, and I want to interact, there are a handful of people here and I want to uh, end our time kind of an application and asking some questions and hopefully kind of engage you as well to ask some of those questions and think through um, part of what we're talking about here today. So, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. But no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though Living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh or the indulgence of the Let's pray, ask God's blessing upon our time as we open his word. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to come and to be able to uh, just look at your word today, to uh, allow you, through your spirit, to draw us unto yourself, both to bring comfort and conviction wherever that is needed, and you as the sovereign spirit who breathed out the words in the first place, the one uh, who can apply it to our lives perfectly and to our context and to our situations. And so we're grateful for the time we give it to you. We ask that you would use it in our lives who are here gathered and also for those who will be watching. And uh, we ask that you would use this time for us for reflection and for application in our lives to remind us of the grace of God that we have through Jesus Christ, the complete and full salvation. Found in the crosswork of your Son. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would bless our time and that you would use it for your glory to advance the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So, the title of of this message, actually, three messages, uh, three parts, is Don't Judge Me. And it really comes right out of the first verse that I read. Uh, Verse 16 says, Let no one judge you, which is an imperative. Um, but it's not something we can actually accomplish. That is, we can't prevent people or keep people from judging us. And so it's meant for um, the the judgment that might cause control over you or to bring you into um, bondage to that person. Um, and so the fear of what other people think or what people might uh, do in their uh, accusing you or... Um, Bringing you into their their thought patterns or their subject to them. So as we look at this text, um, the primary focus that we find in this text is ultimately uh, to focus upon Christ in our connection to him. Uh, That is really what this text is all about. It's putting us back to the finished work of Christ, what he has accomplished uh, through his work on the cross, And that is the main proposition for all three of these messages. I broke them down into three parts, and that is what we find are three faulty motives that might tear us away from his finished work, or or cause us to go away from grace and into law-keeping. And so you find them in this text. The first one we looked at a couple of weeks ago, um, the first faulty motive is that sometimes we are enslaved to the fear of man, the opinions, and the approval of others. It's easy to become that way because we're relational. God has created us that way, and we become subject to or place ourselves under the opinions and the enslavement of others. So that's natural, and it happens. Verse 16 and 17 really speak to that fact. And then secondly, as we looked at last week, um, we exalt feelings, superstition, experiences as authoritative over God's Word. And so in this text, in verses 18 and 19, we find that uh, some would use all sort of things as a matter of control, as a matter of bringing you into subject. And indeed, we sometimes do the same thing. I really want that feeling. That felt so good. I want that back. And that feeling was so good, even though it was contrary to truth, we desire the feeling over faith um, I've used this oftentimes in counseling first John 1: 9 says if we confess our sins we are we, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that's a truth that's something we hold on to okay if I confess my sin the scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin but how many times have we as believers um, have you, uh, confessed your sin and got up off of your knees after confessing your sin and felt like you were still holding on to it. Felt like God didn't forgive you. Felt like you had to still earn His favor. Felt you still had to kind of work your way back into His grace. So, what do you do in that? Do you go by your feeling? What you feel at the moment? Or do you go by faith? And you say, but God has said, if you confess your sin." He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I submit to you that faith um, is superior to feeling because we latch onto the truth of God's word in the midst of uncertainty. And uh, and so we talked about that uh, last week. And then finally, and this is somewhat pragmatic, but nevertheless true, the third faulty motive in which leads us away from grace to really trust other things, is it's sometimes easier, or, if you would, more efficient or effective, to follow regulations, lists, and rules. It is. It's easier. Which is why oftentimes religion imposes rules, because you get a marked product. You see progress. There's a lot of things that are to this, um, but the final verses of this text, uh, convey this matter, and so we're going to look at those today, uh, and as we do, I hope that they will be a help to you, uh, and so as I thought of today, the text in today, you know, I thought just really from a very practical way, lists are helpful, lists are practical, we use them all the time, I do, I don't know about you, especially if you have a job that doesn't have maybe a quota already set or built within it, or a um, a, a set of... of Steps that you do every day in the job that you're doing. If your job, like mine, is somewhat open-ended, lists are really helpful. Because it's like, okay, I have these things I have to do today, and you check them off. It also helps you to feel good at the end of the day that you actually accomplished something. Because sometimes um, you don't or feel like that. You've accomplished anything. Many of days have gone by. My wife would testify to this. I've come home feeling like I've done absolutely nothing, of no value. And so lists are helpful. They measure um, accomplishments. They can serve as reminders of the things that we have to do. They can give one sense of success when things are crossed off, um, or, I suppose, a sense of being overwhelmed when the list is full, like most of men have with their honeydew list, right? Usually, that list um, never ends, and it's much more full. Um after you get done crossing off a couple of things, new ones are added to it. That's um, maybe not where I meant to go. All right. So unfortunately, when it comes to religion, I think we all are aware that too often lists are very much a part of it. Lists become uh, a way in which or a device that's used to measure success and making our way back to God. And so, in this text, the Apostle, writing by inspiration of the Spirit, addresses this. And so, as we look at this text today, we find this third, or the third part of the message, this third unfortunate reason uh, that uh, we we have this motive of moving away from being connected to Christ, moving away from grace to law-keeping. And that's found in verses 20-23. So, these final verses of this chapter make up one complete thought. It's actually a paragraph in and of itself in the original language. And they serve as a summary of the previous warnings that were given. So, verse 8, uh, verse 16, verse 18 all have warnings in them, warning the believers not to become, uh, to allow someone to bring them into judgment or not to allow their faith to be taken captive. So on and so forth. And so these warnings or the warnings were for believers to guard against being cheated, uh, to guard against uh, from those who are who who would bring them into spiritual bondage. They've been set free. So don't go back and place yourself in captivity uh, or in bondage again. And they did this. uh, That is, these false teachers did this by adding rules and regulations as necessary for accomplishing holiness. Uh, or necessary of bringing them back to God. And they cited spiritual visions, meetings with angels as their authority for these rules. And so in so doing, they were diminishing the finished work of Christ and replacing his authority by setting themselves up as authorities having spoken to angels. That's what's going on in this text. And uh, again, it isn't really that terribly unfamiliar, um, that it is that we couldn't find current uh, indications of the same thing happening. That said, I have to underscore that when we talk about list and rule keeping and all of those things, and as we talk about moving away from grace, this passage is not in any way, shape, or form a permission slip to live any way you please, as some people would take it. Um, It doesn't appeal uh, or downplay, rather, the practice of spiritual disciplines. Um, You know, you may have spiritual disciplines in your life uh, that are helpful for you in your spiritual growth and maturity. Maybe in the mornings is your typical time to read the Bible and spend time with the Lord in prayer. This is not, oh, don't have a list. Don't keep these spiritual disciplines. Uh, Just don't trust them as being the very thing that that actually brings you unto God. Uh, And that's really what this text is dealing with. Um, We're naturally bent, I think all of us, towards lawlessness. And our antinomian tendency, our lawless tendency, would use this text to justify living any way we please. And we would naturally do that. And so this text is specifically addressing false teachers And these false teachers who were trying to steer people away from Christ and the authority of Christ and were emphasizing rather holiness through keeping external measurements or or external things. So the context has to be kept in mind. Don't use this context in in a way that's inappropriate to what's being said and spoken to going on here. Because we generally gravitate toward lawlessness... Most religious systems, as I mentioned earlier, emphasize some set of rules, um, some steps or markers that the adherent needs to cross or to follow to gain favor with God. Many others may not have written rules, but have a certain number of practices or taboos that characterize what they deem as spiritual or what is worldly, okay? Those are all what are brought into this text. These lists of do's and don'ts may start off as helpful. They may even be helpful in some way or another. Ways to guard against cultural trends. Ways to guard against um, traits that could lead us into bondage of sin. But when we emphasize those as markers for holiness instead of God's grace, we actually begin to trust in ourselves become lifted up with pride, and that's what we find in this text today. And so as we look at the text, uh, because we generally gravitate towards lawlessness, and most religious systems emphasize some set of rules or markers to obtain approval with God, this text is really conveying our need to keep connected to Christ, to keep resting in His grace, and not be moved away from that. So I'll come back to the discussion of those things at the end. That's really what I spend some time in discussing. Um, but I just wanted to set the table for you uh, to consider those things and then dive into the text. Why do we like lists? Why even uh, in our faith do we tend to gravitate toward list keeping? Or um, why do we like regulations? Um, that is all what I'd like to discuss as we come to an end. But as we look at, at these verses, verses 20 through 23, we find three helpful principles uh, that are right out of the text uh, used to combat the propensity we have to gravitate toward external measurements of spirituality or list-keeping to gain in our quest to become closer to God, if you would. And so the first principle, or truth, is proclaimed here is the same one we've spoken about earlier in this chapter. And that is that true believers are connected to Christ. So verse 20 says very clearly, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. So you're connected to Christ. You died with Him. Your His death was your death. And so the first principle or truth proclaimed here is the same one used earlier. And again in this, we go, all true believers are in Christ. This is proclaimed here to specifically connect believers to Christ's death. Alright? So, His death was your death. Next chapter, we'll talk about His life being your life. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Okay? But here... It's connecting us to his death. And it's saying, because Christ has died, because he he has died, you died too, if you are in Christ. And that death means, ultimately, that no law is over you. Okay, You are free from the constraints of the law. And we'll speak about that as we move along. The second principle is in contrast um is the, is the contrast between the physical and spiritual things, and the present world that is passing away? You, you see him say, um, uh, "All of those things don't touch, don't handle, don't don't taste, uh, are all all perish with the using. That is, they they don't accomplish spiritual things. They're perishable. That's really the idea of what's going on there. And then thirdly, the third principle is the location of the real battle. Where is the real battle in our lives? As believers, where is the real battle going on? And it's the internal one, isn't it? It's not the outward one. It's the inward one that's going on. The location of that battle that's within our hearts or nature. And so he finishes verse 23 and says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body. But they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They won't accomplish eradicating the sinful nature you have through Adam. You cannot. And so um, we read Galatians chapter five, or have read this morning, Pastor Josh did, and the end of that chapter, as he mentioned, speak clearly to the works of the flesh and the works of the or the fruit of the spirit, right? And it is only the fruit of the Spirit that accomplishes this work of grace in our life to deliver us from the old man and the old nature uh, that we gravitate towards. So, so let's look at these principles in detail. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to keep moving on. Let's look at these principles in detail. Believers are in Christ. The first helpful principle here, Christ's death is your death. Here again, the Apostle connects the believer to Christ, and here specifically, to uh, as the reason for their freedom from all such mandatory regulations. The idea being that because you're in Christ, his death was your death, and people who are dead are no longer subject to the rule of law. We find this used in other passages in the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, all speak to the same thing. and so And we've seen this principle already in this chapter earlier in this epistle. And so, it is rather an easy principle to understand, and it's used in other New Testament passages to describe the Christian's freedom from law-keeping as mandatory uh, for obtaining favor with God. For instance, in Romans 7, we find the obligations to marriage, or the marriage vows, used to describe this truth. Uh, There, the until death, right? You have the, the principle of until death um, when you marry someone, you are you are a part of them until death. That clause is used to show that after death, one is free from the covenant. You made this promise, you entered into it, you said, till death do we part. And that promise, that pledge, that covenant ends with um, the end of your uh, life, right? Until death. At that point, whoever is surviving is free to marry. That's the point. And in that text, it's using that analogy of the difference between your obligation to the law. After death, the law carries no weight, no mandatory obligation for you. And because you are dead in Christ, you are no longer under the law. That's the simple truth. And so, Romans 7, verse Uh, 5 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Right? You died. Literally, you died when Jesus died, if you are in Him. And His death, then, is, is the very reason or basis for us no longer to be under the obligatory necessity of the law. And so in the book of Galatians... The argument that believers have died with Christ and are free from the law is conveyed in this way. It says in Galatians 2, verses 18-21, through 21, For if I build again those things, Paul writing, uh, he's the one speaking, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer... I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So here the apostle makes it abundantly clear that he was crucified with Christ. And as such... Dead to the law and its demands. That now, um, that to now seek righteousness uh, sought, I'm sorry, my notes are unclear. That to now seek righteousness sought law keeping would actually be to treat the death of Christ. Okay, so I, I think I had a typo there. So to presently seek righteousness through law keeping would be to negate the very death of Christ, to empty it, to make it meaningless. So life for the person who is in Christ is not so that they can live a self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered life. Instead, it is so they can live unto God for the first time ever through the present working of the Spirit of God. Indeed, this new life is the Christ life through me. Right. I could never, ever have any kind of victory in my life until the very presence of God through his spirit began living and indwelling within me. And then I could have victory unto God. And so that's what's being set forth in this passage. So to be crystal clear. Any thought that you may have uh, or religious teaching that you may hear. Which puts obligatory activity or responsibility upon you in order for you, um, so that you can punch your ticket to heaven or earn God's favor is false. Okay? We are not saved by works of righteousness. Um, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saves us. Now I know. Um, if Larry were here right now with us, Larry would, at least at the end of the message, as he would be walking out the door, would say to me, and he would point his finger at me because he does that. He said, "Pastor, I'm going to tell you one thing. To tell us, die. It's finished. That is, it's done. Salvation's work is complete. It's completely done. There's nothing that I need to do. Nothing I could do. That's the point." Uh, of this text. So any religion that somehow mandates some kind of activity for you to obtain God's favor, to be able to earn it or merit it, is teaching you false and according to the Scriptures. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. That it's not of yourselves. There's nothing you can do. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we would boast, wouldn't we? And that's really... What you find in this text: those who are trying to hold others down by boasting in religious activity and the appeal that they have for list keeping. So, if you've placed your faith in Christ for eternal life, um, then and in your resting in His finished work, then His death was your death. This means. Then any obligation to merit God's favor is both unnecessary and would belittle the meaning of Christ's finished work. There is an older hymn that we used to sing. Haven't sung it recently, but on occasion we sing it, and the, the hymn is Once for All. And it goes like this Free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, Bruised by the fall, grace has redeemed us once for all. Now we are free. There's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me. Oh, hear a sweet call. Come, and he saves us once for all. Children of God, oh, glorious calling. Surely his grace will keep you from falling. Passing from death to life at his call. Blessed salvation. Once for all. And the refrain is Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, the burdens will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. It is the death of Christ. And you, in Christ, are dead to the constraints of the law. Second, the second helpful principle in this text is uh, Worship is in spirit and truth. Stuff perishes with the using. That's what this text is saying. Here, the text, upon stating that believers were connected to the death of Christ, poses um, an extended question. If you look at uh, verse 20, uh, you'll find that at the end of it, it's, it's hyphenated. And then at the hyphen, um, the other side of that, and it picks up in verse 22. But the question is, if or since you died with Christ, from the basic principles of world, Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations according to the commandments and doctrines of men? That is, read past that hyphenated section. Why do you do that according to the... And and in in that question, he's asking us, uh, ultimately, really the, the three major parts of that question. The sphere of these rules he's referring to, the nature of those rules, and the author... Of those rules notice this the sphere of those rules the basic principles of the world. the phrase um, was used earlier in verse 8 you may have uh, be familiar to you it likely refers to the law which is like a schoolmaster that brings us to God teaching us about our sinful nature it's used in Galatians 4 and verse 3 the same phrase uh, in the same manner it writes this Galatians 4 and verse 3 even so. We, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. All right? from We were delivered from the... the God sent forth His Son to redeem us who were under the law. Those basic elements. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So the sphere of these rules is largely the law and law-keeping. And there's a little bit more to it, um, but it's impossible, of course, we know, to keep the law. Uh, By its very nature, the law doesn't justify, it condemns. Those who violate its rules, those who fall short of the perfect mark, which is all of us, uh, are condemned by the law. So it's not that the law is necessarily bad, it's that we're bad and we can't keep it. Since we're linked to Christ and His death, we're no longer enslaved to the law. We're not under the sphere of the law any longer, which is what's being proclaimed here. Then you see the nature of those rules, which all, it says, um, concern things which perish with the using. These are... are, uh, there are a couple of descriptions that convey the very nature of these rules, uh, which are noted here in this text. They are, by nature, negative, right? When you think of law-keeping, by nature, it's don't, right? Uh, it, generally speaking, is, and so here, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, right? Do not, do not, do not. That's the nature of law and law-keeping. And so as seen here, the general characteristic of these regulations is negative. In Christ, we are free, right? Free to worship, free uh, to enjoy uh, the very presence of God and those that are free uh, from such devices of the law. Our relationship to God in Christ must be focused upon His grace and the provision uh, that is free from those restrictions of the law. Second, not only are they negative, By nature, they're temporal by nature. They're consumed. It says, with which all perish with the using. That is, uh, they are a part of this physical earthly world that is passing away. These rules are in themselves about the stuff of this life and will not last and thus have little or nothing to do with the spiritual world. So when it comes to worshiping and serving God, do not put your focus on earthly markers. That's the point. Um, They quickly are consumed up and vanish away. What you eat, what you drink, what you do. It's not that they aren't important. It's just that that's not a marker that we look at. We look at Christ. Keep focusing on Christ. I could not help but think of the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 5, the whole conversation was about moving beyond the physical things around her. The well, the water, the temple, the prophet, all of those things. Um, he was getting her to see beyond them. And he said, as he concluded the conversation, you might recall, God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Which is contrasting the idea of these um, false teachers who were trying to show power over the people at Colossae, who are trying to impose self-made religion upon them, physical markers, boundaries, don't do this, don't do that. And he's saying, worship God in spirit and in truth. Finally, the author of those rules, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, finishes. Well, there's the authority. The commandments and doctrines of men. Here now we see that the rules and regulations being referred to in this instance are not even the law of God necessarily, but are the commandments and doctrines of men. This likely refers to the asceticism, that was up, uh, on the uprise in the area of Colossae. And so I'll, I'll address this more specifically in a little while. The point here is that these rules were man-centered regulations that were more restrictive, maybe even than the law of God, on ordering human behavior. Okay. Conclusion. Not the conclusion of the message. The conclusion of this point. Don't get your hopes up. All right? So at the beginning, the question was asked, Why do you subject yourselves? That is, why are you who are free placing yourselves under the obligation of that from which you have been delivered? Why? You are willingly placing yourself under rules that have no divine origin. They're from men. They have no divine authority. And do not deliver you in the first place, which is what we see in the final point here. The real battle is within. The real battle lies within the very heart of man. These rules and regulations, no matter which ones you dream of, cannot lead us unto God. Finding our way back to God is not climbing a ladder, is not working our way up. It was because Jesus descended down, took on human flesh, paid sin's penalty, allowed us to have a salvation full and free from any effort of our own. So the last verse, verse 23 of the chapter, really puts it all in perspective. It makes it clear that no amount of rule keeping, no matter how devout or sincere the adherent has, they don't have any value against the indulgences of the flesh. That's who it says. That, uh, that's a pretty strong phrase. They have no value against the indulgences of the flesh. It would be one thing to say it is not successful in eradicating the impulses of the flesh. Although um, it, <laughs> it may be helping some. No, even worse. It has absolutely no value. And putting down the indulgence of the flesh. The idea is that self-discipline. Will prevent you from certain sinful activities. Maybe. Or behaviors. But it cannot. And it does not move the needle. In our fight. Against our Adamic nature. That's in, inherent within us. Um, at best it is an exchange of sins at the very best we substitute one for the other that's what it's really saying we exchange one a person may stop stealing only to find himself struggle deeply with covetousness they may lift themselves out of the gutter of immorality only to be filled with pride and contempt for people who are less moral than themselves It's not the sins of the flesh um, versus the sins of the spirit. All sin is sin before God. But we tend to mark one as different from the other. And so, asceticism and any kind of religion that fixes up the outside does nothing to move our heart toward God. Does nothing to eradicate the old man, the sinful nature. Does nothing in the help of that battle. We are just as much sinners as we ever were. It reminds me of the parable of Jesus who spoke of um, the demon that was removed from a person and the person cleansed themselves, right? They, 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 they did everything to clean up the house. And when the demon saw that the house was clean, he came back with seven more of his friends. That's ultimately what it's saying here. I couldn't help but think of Martin Luther's testimony. If you've ever read anything of Martin Luther, you find that he became a monk and he desired to somehow eradicate the sin nature. And he did everything he could, tormenting himself, beating down his flesh, doing everything he could to try to remove himself and and to move the needle, if you would, back toward God. And his own testimony was that the more he flailed on his flesh, the more he um, persecuted his own inner man, the more hideous it became the more he could see that he couldn't do anything about it. And so it is, as we look in the Scriptures here, these have a show. They look like they work. They have an appearance. Like they actually accomplish something in making us look good. We, we clean up the product on the outside, if you would. But inside, as Jesus said, it's full of dead men's bones. There's only one thing that can deliver us from the old nature. There's only one thing that can deliver us from the penalty of sin, and that's the work of Christ and the believer's connection to him. So, coming back to the questions, and I'll engage uh, the handful of people that are here. So why do so many religions make it about externals? Why do we gravitate to the same thing? Uh, They have an appearance, right, of of self-imposed religion. The idea of that phrase is, is that there's this, these outward actions of self-denial seem to work. They merit God's favor. They have a certain degree of wisdom grounded in a human appeal. But they don't really move us unto God. But why? Why? Even after coming to faith in Christ, why do we gravitate toward list keeping? Why do we gravitate toward external measurements? Why is that that we do that? So, Mike, (laughs) just like other list keeping, right? It's an external measurement and we want to see progress, right? So part of it is um, lists provide some measure of success to us. We feel good about it. Hey, I remember when I first came to faith in Christ, I had a very filthy mouth. Some of you uh, have a hard time believing that your pastor um, used a lot of foul language, but I did. I remember after coming to faith in Christ, the first week of going the whole week without taking God's name in vain, and I thinking, "Wow, look at me! I've really arrived." <laughs> what a what a silly thing to think, but that's the idea of those external measurements. What else? Why else do we um, do we? keep lists, or why is it that we're prone that way? Mm -hmm. Yes, Chris. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. It's easier in the short term. Not in the long term. It's easier to do the list. Think of raising children. It's a lot easier to just say, do what I told you to do. It's a lot different to teach them the moral reason why. This is why you're doing what you're doing. It takes time to help them navigate through all of those things. But when they mature and when they leave your home, if they only were able to keep the list, they might find themselves on shaky ground. Because they've never developed a sense of working through uh, and knowing why they're doing what they're doing, not just what they're doing. And so it is um, for us. It's easier. Only in the short term. Not in the long run. Okay? What else? Anybody else? Yes, Don? Yeah. Yeah, it does... Put our eyes on that which we can see, right in this this physical transient world, and so we can see the progress. We can't really see it otherwise. I remember growing up working on a farm, and every day, you know, <laughs> the cows needed to be milked, the chores needed to be done, and when you got done with the day, um, ultimately you had to go back and do it again the next day. <laughs> there was no measure of Any success, you're working on it. Today, I actually uh, said to the farmer who offered me to stay on after graduation from high school, I said, there's no way. I don't want to get up that early in the morning. and I don't want to work seven days a week. So, so much for that plan. So, and I wanted to see success with my life. Well, anyway, there's not much more. Okay, so lists are easier. Lists work. We're kind of pragmatic. In our life, we use lists because they work. When it comes to our faith, we have to transition out of what's pragmatic and what works to what's, um, you know, being written in the Word, connecting ourselves to Christ. Lists show external measurement, and as I, as Brother Don mentioned, lists inflate pride. We kind of like lists. You know, it's like look what I've done, look where I've been how good I am. Um, And it has a um, self-pride, adulation, but also a a condemnation of the world. And there's no place for that in Christianity. No place for that. So uh, we're going to close with a hymn. And so Brother Chris is going to come and close us in a hymn. I hope that this will be encouragement to you. I hope it creates more discussion with you and your families at home.